all things gruesome and historical to the comfort of your own home or car or wherever it is you're listening from. My name is Hannah Purdyman and I'm here with my father Kevin Purdyman to discuss some of the most famous and infamous murders that took place in the medieval and early modern periods. Just wanted to jump in here real quick with a shout out to Dr. Matthew Berryman who was with us last podcast and discussed some different medieval murder execution type things Super interesting. If you guys haven't listened to it, you guys might check it out. Medieval Murder came to be first as a blog, then as an Instagram, and now as a podcast after I finished my master's dissertation on homicide in early medieval England. The podcast will feature some of the most famous murders in medieval history, some mini-episode series on different types of medieval murders, and interviews with historians and history enthusiasts alike. Today we'll be talking about two saints during the medieval period who were both murdered. But first, let's give a little background on how someone would become a saint. During the medieval period, sainthood and sanctity became an important component of religious worship, especially within the Catholic Church. In the early medieval period, saints were venerated by local churches through spontaneous acts or popular acclaim justified by miracles performed by the saints. Beginning in the late 10th century, the veneration of saints and the cult of saints that followed were increasingly sanctioned by Catholic bishops. According to Michael Goodrich, one of the most effective means of harnessing popular energy to the papal cause was a vast proliferation of saints' cults dedicated to men and women sympathetic to the Roman viewpoint. With the aid of such cults and the organizations which supported them, the church hierarchy could control and oversee a form of religious enthusiasm, which might otherwise find more destructive channels. So, these formation of cults, were they worshipping the saints or were they worshipping... Jesus, or how did that all work? They were worshiping the saints. So popular acclaim would be a group of people would either witness miracles or would believe somebody was so virtuous as to become a saint that they would begin worshiping them without having them become an official saint. So how, how did the church deal with that? That seems counter, counter to what they would be wanting at that time. So we're going to explore that in just a minute. Between the 11th and 12th centuries, the Catholic Church developed a papal process which delegated who could be venerated as a saint. So this is what came to be after that popular acclaim, after those saints' cults. So the Catholic Church wanted more power. So after 1200, this process became known as canonization. This new formalized papal process was due to the papacy's increasing ambition to authorize the establishment of new cults, thus preventing saints' cults from arising and challenging the authority and power of the Catholic Church as an institution. So we have the old process and the new process to become a saint. Now, is it required that a miracle be performed to become a saint and be venerated or canonized? So not necessarily. So during the medieval period, performing miracles alone does not make one worthy of sainthood. But if someone performs miracles and is virtuous, they could be venerated as a saint. But also if someone was just truly virtuous and they didn't perform miracles, they could also be venerated as a saint. 
So one of the female saints who was venerated during the late 11th century was Gaudelieve of Giselle. The life of Gaudelieve of Giselle reflects the way women were valued during the medieval period. Gaudelieve's Vita was written by Drogo of St. Winoskisbergen. That's probably not right, but we're going to go with it. At the end of the 11th century, about 10 years after her death, this Vita aided in the process of veneration or canonization as it described Gaudelieve's life and the events that took place that made her worthy of sanctity. What makes Gaudelieve unique is that she is the only married female martyr to be canonized as a saint by a medieval pope. So were there other female saints at the time? There were a lot of other female saints at the time. Now, the saints in general at this time period, whether they be men or women, were they martyrs most of the time? or A lot of them were martyrs. Okay. And... Pretty much most of them were martyrs that I can think of off the top of my head. Some of them were not. Some of them just led an incredibly holy life. Um, and then once they died, sometimes um, they would miracles would be performed at their tomb. Sometimes people would begin kind of petitioning the church for their um, canonization as a saint. For example, St. Louis IX. He was king of France, and after his death on crusade in, to J Jerusalem, he, um, a lot of the people who fought with him, who were his personal attendants as king, they began to send letters to the papacy demonstrating his sanctity, his virtuousness, and why he should be sanctified in the Catholic Church. And so after probably a couple decades I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to go back and look. But after a couple of decades, he was eventually canonized as a saint within the Catholic Church because people believed him so virtuous and worthy of sanctity. Okay. Now, another quick question. Avita, that's kind of like their life story, or was, or was that the same process? Um, was that part of an integral part of the process of becoming a saint? Someone would write all your stuff and send it to, to Rome or... Most saints have a vita, and a vita is the life of a saint. So, like, the vita Gaudelief is the, the life of Gaudelief. Okay, gotcha. Yes. I have struggled to find details about Gaudelief's life, other than in the works that have been cited within the podcast notes. The vita Gaudelief, written by Drogo, is hard to access, and so I have made do with the information I've found. Gaudelief's story is one of abuse and murder, but also one of miracles. Gaudelieve of Giselle was born sometime between the year 1040 and 1050 at Londesbourg Castle in France. Gaudelieve was a very beautiful young woman and was sought after by many suitors. However, she was also very pious and faithful to God. The Count of Bourgogne, who was the ruler in that region, arranged her marriage to Bertolf of Giselle against her wishes. Gaudelieve was most likely married when she was quite young by modern standards. Bertolf and Gaudelieve's marriage was a very unhappy. Soon after they were married, Bertolf punished her by ordering her servants to only allow her to eat bread and water. Gaudelieve demonstrated her kindness by sharing her meager meals with the poor. Drogo wrote in her vita that Bertolf was a cruel and abusive husband, and even possibly possessed by the devil, inflicting abuse on Gaudelieve, possibly blaming her for his own sexual dysfunction. Eventually, Gaudelieve escaped and ran back to the home of her father, Hemfried. However, Hemfried feared for his daughter's future and took her back to Bertolf to continue to act as his wife. 
Unfortunately, Hemfried's fears were not unfounded, but were also misplaced. When Gottlieb returned, Bertolf ordered two of his servants to murder her, and she was strangled in her bed and then thrown into a pool of water to make it look as if she was drowned. So Gottlieb was an abused spouse. Mm-hmm. And then at that time, I know sometimes the fathers are marrying their daughters off, but now we, in this period of time, kind of the, the super landholder of the area could marry people off? Yes. Okay. Now, does the Vita contain any reference to her specific miracles? So since I don't have access to the Vita itself, I only have access to these secondary sources. I've found that most of her miracles were performed post-mortem, so after she died, either at her tomb or when people were worshipping her shrine. And they have included healing the sick and restoring the sight to the blind. Okay. So there's been much debate about St. Gottlieb and what her Vita tells us about the medieval period and their views of laywomen, which is much too much to get into here. But we will be getting into it in a future podcast episode. So St. Glenifor, our other saint that we're going to explore, is another unique saint for the medieval period and for the Catholic Church in general. In 1260, the Catholic Church heard of miracles being performed by a St. Guinefort in southeastern France. St. Guinefort was supposedly healing sick children and was being worshipped by the local women. The papacy decided to send the Dominican Inquisitor Stéphane of Bourbon to investigate the Holy Man. However, when Stéphane arrived, he found that the followers of St. Guinefort were not worshipping a holy man, but a greyhound. All right. Yeah. So, Guinefort was a greyhound who was owned by a knight who lived in Lyon. According to Stéphane's report to the church, In the diocese of Lyon, near the enclosed nun's village called Neuville, on the estate of the Lord of Villars, was a castle, the lord of which and his wife had a baby boy. One day, when the lord and lady had gone out of the house, and the nurse had done likewise, leaving the baby alone in in the cradle, a huge serpent entered the house and approached the baby's cradle. Seeing this, the greyhound, which had remained behind, chased the serpent and, attacking it beneath the cradle, upset the cradle and bit the serpent all over, which defended itself, biting the dog equally severely. Finally, the dog killed it and threw it well away from the cradle. The cradle, the floor, the dog's mouth, and head were all drenched in the serpent's blood. Although badly hurt by the serpent, the dog remained on guard beside the cradle. When the nurse came back and saw all this, She thought that the dog had devoured the child and let out a scream of misery. Hearing it, the child's mother also ran up, looked, thought the same thing, and screamed too. Likewise, the knight, when he arrived, thought the same thing and drew his sword and killed the dog. Then, when they went closer to the baby, they found it safe and sound, sleeping peacefully. Casting around for some explanation, they discovered the serpent torn to pieces by the dog's bites and now dead. Realizing then the true facts of the matter, and deeply regretting having unjustly killed so useful a dog, they threw it into a well in front of a manor door, threw a great pile of stones on top of it, and planted trees beside it in memory of the event. So this well became a sort of shrine for St. Guinefort, the Holy Greyhound. When women would go to the shrine with their sick children, they would supposedly be miraculously healed. So when Stéphane of Bourbon realized that St. Guinefort was a dog, he reported back to the Catholic Church. 
who then required him to destroy the shrine and stop the local people from worshipping him, as he couldn't be a true saint as a doll. Stefan disinterred St. Guinefort's remains and had them destroyed. He then burned down the trees that surrounded the well that made up the shrine. While Stefan of Bourbon can be seen almost as a villain in the story, his report to the church shows that he was very sympathetic to the plight of the holy dog, stating that Guinefort's death was an unjustly killing of, of a dog so useful, and that it was a noble deed and innocent death. Stefan of Bourbon's report back to the church, which was describing how he destroyed the shrine and cult of saints, was what made it so St. Guinefort survived throughout history and is still known today as the Holy Greyhound. So this Holy Greyhound, is he recognized by the church as a saint? No, he's not. He's not recognized by the Catholic Church, but he was still worshipped as a saint locally for several centuries. Okay. So I'm a huge fan of doggos, and if you are too, I bet you agree with me that dogs are responsible for miracles every day around the world. If you treat a dog right, they will shower you with unconditional love and loyalty. And they have a great knack for knowing what their human needs. Very true. That being said, I've got a couple of dogs that while not sainted, maybe should be. The first is Barry de Menschredder, Barry. He was around from 1800 to 1814, living at the Great St. Bernard Hospice in Switzerland near the border with Italy. He predates the modern St. Bernard and was a little bit lighter and smaller than what we know as the St. Bernard today. During his lifetime, he is credited with saving more than 40 lives. Manschredder means people rescuer in German. Dogs were thought to have been introduced to the Great St. Bernard Hospice between 1660 and 1670. Skulls recovered from the hospice indicate there are at least two types of dogs that live there. Now the hospice is a monastery um, that was up in the Alps. By the 1800s, it is known that a special dog was being used for rescue work in the past. It was known as a Kunderhund or a cowherder's dog. So these dogs, they would help, they would patrol the pass and help rescue people. And they were also um, aided in the bandits in the, in the pass at the time. Not aiding the bandits, but kept the bandits from attacking people trying to make it through the pass. Barry's most famous rescue was that of a young child who was asleep in an ice cave. Barry is said to have licked him to warm him up and was able somehow to get get the child on his back and carry him back to the hospice. The child survived and it is debated whether he was returned to his parents or if they had perished in the same avalanche that trapped the boy. The story goes that Barry saved 40 people, but there's also a story out there that says while he saved 40 people, the 41st killed him. Oh. The story goes he's attempting the rescue of a Swiss soldier. Following his scent, he began to dig him out of the snow. When he started to lick the soldier, the soldier mistook him for a wolf and killed him with his bayonet. While alluded to a plaque in a pet cemetery in France, the story is untrue. Barry worked for 12 years at the hospice before he was bought by a monk and lived out the rest of his days in Bern. His body is in the Natural History Museum of Bern, and in 2000, to commemorate Barry's 200th birthday, a special exhibit was held in his honor at the museum. The next dog I found is a lifeguard dog who worked in Wales on the docks and the river banks in Swansea on the River Taw. 
He was born in 1930 and his first rescue was said to go uncredited as there was no one around to see him. But he pulled a 12-year-old boy from the river. A few weeks later, he rescued a swimmer in distress from the river in front of a crowd on the local docks. It is documented with a story and a picture of Jack in the local paper. During his lifetime, Swansea Jack is credited with saving 27 people from the water. He died in 1937 after eating rat poison. There's a Swansea Jack Memorial on the promenade in Swansea near St. Helens Rugby Ground. This is in Wales. So was Jack trained to be a lifeguard? You know, I, I couldn't find out if he was actually trained to be a lifeguard, but what I did find is during this period, there were dogs that were trained to rescue people from the water. Interesting. And I don't, I don't know if there still are today in England, but, but there is actually a couple of societies that for the training of water rescue dogs. That's crazy. Yep. While these two haven't been sainted, they did perform miracles. Maybe they should be sainted. I think St. Guinevere should be acknowledged by the Catholic Church as a saint. But that's just me. I don't know that that's going to happen. I mean, I guess we could really delve into Barry and Swansea Jack and do a Vita for him and send it on and see what happens, but I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm thinking... I'm thinking pro not. Probably not. Yeah. But it's a nice thought. Yeah. I mean. Thank you for listening to Medieval Murder. If you have any listener questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please feel free to reach our, out via our Twitter account, at Murder Medieval, our Instagram account, at Medieval Murder, or via email at info.medievalmurder at gmail.com. Tune in in two weeks for our next podcast. <laughs>